Washington did not really outfight the British. He simply outspied us. Quote from senior British naval officer. talk about the people that invented wi-fi more like who invented wi-fi they're the reason for the downfall of society as we know it (laughs) (laughs) i think that's a lot of pressure for wireless internet have you ever heard of like those internet like utopian people who are like at the beginning were just like internet is going to be the greatest thing that's ever happened to mankind it's going to solve all of our problems and now they've come (laughs) out like recently and they've been like we were wrong. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. It was Dr. John O'Sullivan, Australian engineer. He's the one that created Wi-Fi? He led the team who developed Wi-Fi. It's kind of crazy. Nice. It'd be a fun little episode to do. From Down Under. Down Under. Shout out Australia. But welcome back to another episode. I guess I'm introing. Welcome back yeah, to another <laughs> episode of the Gems of History podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Roosh, and join with me as always. We have Jacob Schott. Hello, hello. I'm back. Uh, Welcome back, everyone who's been along the ride uh, with us over the past two years. And welcome to any new listeners. We are a history podcast where we cover some more obscure topics, kind of do a more of a deep dive than the typical paragraph that you learn about certain subjects in school, uh, where they kind of just glance over. We kind of dive more into those topics and cover some obscure topics. And we have a really fun topic for you today. Uh, this is part two of our spy series, particular, particularly with the Revolutionary War. Uh, in episode one, we talked about the British spies and all of their shenanigans and what they were trying to do to undermine the newly born U.S. of A. And today we're going to be talking about, in our bi- very biased opinion, the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I- Yes, sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think the colonists were innocent people, that's for sure. But <laughs> very much is, morality uh, is subjective. The good old US yes. of A. So. The good old US of A, but I apologize if I sound nasally. I'm pretty I'm battling a cold right now, so Thank you for your service. <laughs> I'm trying my hardest out here, you know. Honestly, it's hard out here in these cold streets. But yeah, as soon as you said that, the first thing that popped in my mind is Oh, yeah, well, you know, it's that time. (laughs) You know, I prepared for this episode by, one, getting sick, two, watching all of the Wednesday series on Netflix, and listening to a bunch of K-pop music, so I think I'm in the perfect mindset to talk about the revolution. To talk about the... (laughs) (laughs) To talk about redcoats and colonists. But our intro music is, like, perfect for this time period, so... Foreshadowing, or not foreshadowing, we called it. (laughs) (laughs) Foreshadowing. Yeah, Yeah, we called that two years ago. We were like, one day we'll talk about something that fits the music. Right, not Aliens, or MKUltra, or Copious Months of LSD, or fill in the blanks. Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. Uh, George Washington's kind of a cool guy. Honestly, he he really is. There's just always so many stories, I think, that come out. Like since we're getting like more and more access to documents, like for example, we didn't know about the Culper spy ring that Jacob will be kind of leading that topic on um, halfway through the show to like 1930. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like we just didn't know like these very who we know now as very influential people and 
And we still don't really know who everyone was that was involved with it. Right. Like, we just know all the big names in it, the ones that led it and stuff like that. But we really don't know if there was more people that were involved. And there's so many people with, with that ambiguity, everyone can throw their own theories into it. Right. So it's almost become like an American conspiracy theory at this point. Just not not the cult perspiring as a whole, but the people involved with it, because there could be one... As we'll find out, there could be like a little mention of one thing in, in a letter, and then historians will take that and run with it and make books and movies just based on that one line. So, oh, historians do love doing that. But I guess that I guess that means that that was a good operation. They were we gonna, still don't know about it. They, you know? Were so, they were such good spies that two hundred years later, we're still trying to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm excited. This is going to be a fun one. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But if you didn't get a chance to listen to our part one of the series, definitely go back and listen to that. We kind of set up what the time was like uh, in the colonies, which of course is where a majority of the or where the Revolutionary War took place. We kind of set the tone of what people's mindsets were like and whatnot. Uh, so definitely give a listen back to that one. But for part two of our series, I'm actually going to start with information about John Jay who many consider to be the father of American espionage. You're not going to talk about Nathan Hale, the only one that anyone talks about who actually sucked? Oh, I'll get to him later. (laughs) But when we talk about, now this is foreshadowing, when we talk about these spies who we still don't know, Nathan Hale may be one of the we, worst ones. We definitely know. <laughs> we definitely know. We know about Nathan. But it's Hale. so funny because I watched like three different documentaries on this time period for American spies, and every single one's just like, "Yeah, Nathan Hale, he's a spy. He got caught right away." Right away. <laughs> but John Jay was one of the leading figures in the birth of the U.S. as we know it today. He's very much celebrated for his contributions to the drafting and the writing and the actual approving of the U.S. Constitution, and he was also one of the great statesmen and leaders at the time. He was a diplomat, jurist, and governor, but, fun fact, he was also an exemplary spy. In fact, he led the Committee for Detecting and Defeating Conspiracies, which I feel like that's what we need to rename the show. <laughs> yeah, that's us. <laughs> that's us. But we kind of propagates conspiracies like we also we we don't do good at our job we also feed flames to the fire yeah yeah, we we do the opposite every once in a while but uh, as a result of his numerous successes in exposing british espionage activities and foiling plots against the u.s rebellion jay is widely known as the founding father of american counterintelligence i love that around this time period and even before this if you looked at if you look up someone on the internet, it's just like, they were a mathematician, a physicist, a historian, a chemist, and they headed the committee for conspiracies. It's like, I'm a welder. Right. <laughs> I don't have 19 different credits to my name. Talk about wearing a lot of different hats, but it's like, yeah, he was also training dogs on the side. Like, yeah. what? Because <laughs> John Jay was like a statesman. He he drafted the Constitution. <laughs> he was a very good spy, and he was also a chemist. It's yeah. Like, Okay, we get it. <laughs> but it's probably also he like maybe as a kid mixed one of those potions that you do yeah, in the bed. It's just like dirt and sticks. Like and toddler's first chemistry kit where it yeah. gives you like very dangerous chemicals for a four-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but John Jay was born in 1745. 
Uh, being from New York, he was known in his later years as one of the original constitutional framers. He was also, also <laughs> he was also the author of five of the Federalist Papers, which, if you're not familiar, were essays that galvanized the public behind the new Constitution. And he was also the first Chief Justice of the United States. So when we talk about wearing a lot of hats, this guy, he wore 17. They he, were, just, he just kept putting on different coats, yeah, depending on which at, room he was in. At that time, yeah, it was all about coats. As a diplomat, John Jay helped negotiate the end of the Revolutionary War uh, with the Treaty of Paris in 1783. And even averted another war with Britain by negotiating what became known as the Jay Treaty. And before all that, he was a devoted patriot and a delegate to the Continental Congress prior to becoming the president of the Continental Congress. Kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. He was a big name, big name. But like we mentioned, along the many, many hats that he wore, he's not really known for his counter-espionage because they were... This activity was probably one of the most impactful of the Revolutionary War from his standpoint. Jay was just 30 years old when he was appointed to lead this committee for detecting and defeating count conspiracies, the Gems of History podcast. Uh, and it was formed by the New York State Legislature uh, for the purpose of, and I quote, inquiring into, detecting, and defeating all conspiracies which may be formed Against the liberties of America. Yeah, there's two people that can do accents on the show now. <laughs> yeah, I never said you couldn't. Yeah, maybe that's just my internal brain. Where else would the brain be, Evan? But yeah, that's just me. <laughs> this is my external brain. Yeah, my external brain. It's Albert Einstein's. Yeah. This is my pocket brain. <laughs> <laughs> they said I'd never have a calculator in my pocket, but they didn't expect a brain. Albert Einstein. <laughs> The charter for the committee of pointing out bad guys and spies to put a different framing on the longer name uh, was to investigate the activities of loyalists who, like we mentioned in episode one, constituted about 50% of the colonist population because we were very much split in half at this time. Especially around New York. Oh my gosh, the entire Upper East Coast was all... yeah. Like split right in it half. It was very hard to find like true support for the the Continental Army up there. Mm -hmm. Committee members were sworn to secrecy, empowered with new legal authorities, including the power to deport anyone that they seemed fit, and a company of militia who were placed at their disposal. And over the course of its existence, the committee investigated more than five hundred allegations of betrayal and sedition. Wow, busy guys. I'm sure that was a lot of deportations. <laughs> yeah, that probably did. They were very hesitant about it, I'm sure. They were very much like, oh, you're wearing red? Get out of here. <laughs> you looked at me weird. And thus started America's policies on <laughs> deportation. Build a wall. Build a wall. Watch that be one, like, just a, a clip that someone yeah, clip takes. It. Clip it. Uh, one of Jay's, John Jay's most effective operatives was Enoch Crosby, who was a cobbler and a former Continental Army soldier who served under one Benedict Arnold, this funny enough. Had, this dude has a sweet name, <laughs> Enoch Crosby. Crosby. I mean, Crosby's got bad connotations now, but... Are you thinking Cosby? <laughs> yeah, is that what you said? 
No, oh, sorry, it's Enoch Crosby. Oh, okay. So he's a kicker. <laughs> he's a kicker NFL. for <laughs> not yeah. dr- a guy who drugs women. Yes, two different people. But Crosby spied around the Fishkill area, which was about seventy miles north of New York City. He used his trade as a cobbler as his cover, moving about the area and posed as a British sympathizer employing assorted aliases to infiltrate several loyalist groups. During these espionage activities, he collected information about loyalist plans and spying activities, shared it with John Jay and the Committee for Detecting and Defeating Conspiracies, the CDDC, thereby undermining a number of loyalist operations and passing along the names of British spies in the area. Being a spy around this time had to have been so much fun, because you could just go into a new town and say you were someone else. The, There's no way to prove you weren't. I think about that all the time, with like the Wild West and like being an outlaw. Yeah. It's like, just rob the bank and go about five miles north, and it's like, yeah, nope, wasn't me. I mean, even with H.H. H. Holmes, like that was yeah. the early 1900s, and he could still do that. Like He could go from Chicago down south and just be like, I'm a different guy now. I'm a new person. Well, the conspiracy with like John Wilkes Booth, for example, and we did a full episode on that, I believe, like early gems of history. Yeah, you you headed that one. Like he almost got away. He pretty yeah. much did get away with it if it's a true conspiracy, just because like you know, there's no pictures. Yeah, there's no way to know. Like, <laughs> there's, there's no, no way to know. <laughs> you don't have a birth certificate you carry with you or anything, All right? But though. Enoch Crosby came under frequent suspicion from the loyalists in the loyalists in the area. His genuine allegiance was never discovered. He was also arrested multiple times, however, by the American side. <laughs> so he was such a good spy that he was duping both sides. That's kind of impressive. He was playing both games. I mean, if you play both sides, I guess you can't really lose. So. <laughs> that's true uh, or if, you could lose doubly like if we lose yeah if we would have lost this war he's like i've actually always been loyalist. exactly never reveal your true allegiance yep always keep them on their toes when he was captured by americans however his captors once they learned his true identity would actually engineer his escape in quotes allowing crosby to remain in character and return to his espionage activities so it was a real team effort between like the jailers and the people that caught him. And I mean, if he had a system, and he was he, was, he used it. <laughs> he had to use it quite frequently. You gotta have contingents to just get out of any situation, I guess. So this right. guy was ready. Right, right. John Jay was actually so impressed with Crosby's skills and instincts that he gifted the spy a horse and a large operating budget. I wonder if this guy was actually... So, like, $25. <laughs> I wonder if he was actually smart or if he was, like, uh, Three Stooges-type lucky, where, like, he would, someone would swing at him and they would just swing above him as he ducked over to as pick he's up tying a penny a shoe, or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that was the case. And then uh, John Jay just saw him get lucky too many times and was like, I think I'm going to use you. He's got a little... St- and that's when the word moxie yeah, I was. I was just yeah. about to say, you got moxie, kid. You got moxie, kid. Uh, After nine months of constant suspicion and detainment, Crosby was no longer useful as a spy and rejoined the army as a regular militiaman. This happens a lot in the early days. They just recruit someone and they're like, you actually suck at this. So you keep on getting caught by both sides. Just get in the front lines and take a musket ball. Go fight. 
When the war ended, he returned to his home community. Excuse me. When the war ended, Enoch Crosby returned to his home community, where he served as a deputy sheriff, a deacon, and a justice of the peace. So again, four different jobs. Yeah. I mean, when there's only like 14 people in the town, I guess you can do it all. Yeah, right. John Jay's wartime experiences with counterespionage certainly shaped his perspective as one of the constitutional framers. Along with James Madison and one Alexander Hamilton, not the musical, he was the co-author of The Federalist Papers, a collection of 85, 85, holy cow. And John I knew there were a lot. wrote five, you said? He wrote five of them. Okay. Alexander Hamilton, we'll have to do an episode on, I mean, watch the musical if you want his information, but Hamilton wrote, I think like 60 of those. They were busy. He went hard in the paint. Uh, but in Federalist number 64, Jay argued of, for, for the necessity of secrecy and the exercise of certain executive branch powers. And the essay was a discussion of treaties, the power to negotiate them, and the role of the Senate in advising and consenting to treaties. I am the Senate. He basically said, I am the Senate. <laughs> Jay was experienced in both espionage and diplomacy, of course, and emphasized the role of discretion whenever he was involved in foreign affairs. In fact, in one of his essays, and I read a quote now, it seldom happens in the negotiation of treaties of whatever nature, but that perfect secrecy and immediate dispatch are sometimes requisites. I'm in the middle of an accent, and I don't know how I'm going to take it to the next level. <laughs> Do you, do you have to like get it, keep it ex- ascending, yeah. ascending it until it gets yeah. to the next part? These are cases where the most useful intelligence may be obtained. If the persons possessing it can be relieved from apprehensions of discovery, those apprehensions will operate on those persons whether they are actuated by mercenary or friendly motives. And there doubtless are many of both descriptions. Who would rely on the secrecy of the president, but who would not confide in that of the Senate, and still less in that of a large popular assembly? So to surmise that, he said, don't trust these streets, don't trust these hoes in the Senate, let the executive branch do whatever it wants in accordance with diplomacy, negotiating treaties, etc. Because in his experience, he was very much, he just knew that in a lot of these treaty negotiations, there was typically an inside man. Like we talked about uh, last week, we talked about an individual spy who was part of the American uh, foreign affairs to France and who was disrupting it from the inside. Yeah. So from his experience with that, that's where he got the phrase, don't trust these hoes. That's fair. It's kind of like, it is a good thing at this time period, though, I think. Just let those in charge handle the like that kind of stuff because otherwise people like normal people would just be freaking out all the time being like what do i have to do here and just like just let us handle it don't worry about it i always wonder what life was like post like immediately post-revolutionary war we beat the british at yorktown probably an insane party what's the day after like yeah right <laughs> there's like we don't have like British were protecting us. That's why we paid them taxes. Right. So yeah. what do we do now? What happens now? Like all the founding fathers are like, holy 
crap that works. We just hope that no one else decides to invade immediately after this. Oh gosh, yeah, like the Spanish could have definitely, or even the French. Yeah, after, the after they, they helped us just, out, they could have been like, "Yeah, you're they ours." Could have now. done a complete 180. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now on to George Washington, and by extension, the Culper Ring. So George Washington had a huge value on intelligence and counterintelligence, and this came from his military experience. So. In 1753, when Washington was 21, uh, he joined the Virginia militia and was sent off on a diplomatic mission to inform French officials that forts in the Ohio Valley had been built within British territory and must be surrendered. And beyond delivering that request or demand, Washington was also to be a spy and gather intelligence on the French defenses in case the French were like the French in Monty Python, and said that you can't have our fort. Well, and it starts a war, so yeah. it didn't really work. <laughs> right. But but naturally, the French refused to budge, and Washington returned with a plethora of information, providing considerable details to his superiors about the fortifications of the French. George Washington's experience uh, in this ordeal and many others uh, when dealing with the French led to his led to the importance that he placed on espionage in the Revolutionary War. In fact, in the early war experience of the Continental Army's first reconnaissance unit, the Knowlton Rangers, led to the capture and execution of one of the wayward spies. So we talked last week about how one of the lifeguards of George Washington almost tried to kill him. But since there was such a profound importance put on to counter-espionage, George W., you know, survived. George, George W. Not George W. Bush. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in early 1777, Washington then selected Nathaniel Sackett, a member of John Jay's Committee for Detecting and Defending Conspiracies. Defeating Conspiracies. Defending Conspiracies. That's not what you want to do. But this led to, eventually the formation of the Culper Spy Ring. Yeah, the Culper Spy Ring is kind of sick. It, it is, really is. It is, it is cool. interesting that George Washington, though, like went from, he was a veteran of the French Indian Wars, and then he resigned just to go back to Virginia to just be a farmer. He wanted to just hang out. He wanted nothing to do See, with this He spent this like 20 years just sitting on a farm, and yeah. then he just started voicing his opinion, saying like, the British suck. They're taxing us too much. And then they asked him to be the general of the entire Continental Army. Can you imagine like your drunk uncle at Thanksgiving? I am the drunk uncle at Thanksgiving, but imagine like me then being just voicing some opinions. Yeah. And then becoming the leader of the Continental Army. And that giant committee just says, you're in charge now. We like the cut of this guy's cloth. I mean, they just, they chose him. All, like, there's people that didn't want him to be the commander in chief, but they pretty much only appointed him because he was from Virginia. Right. Like, you can help us bring the South to like help us even though we're going to fight a lot in the north and we mm -hmm. need the north and the south to work together here so can you imagine this is again like one of those moments like if twitter existed yeah old takes exposed <laughs> like those people that were like i don't really trust this george washington guy it would have been so bad but yeah the culper spy ring was the uh the ring that was eventually set up by george washington and it was kind of his insular group it was a very tight-knit group of people that he ended up organizing and 
the name Culper actually comes from a small Virginia community named Culpepper, which is where George Washington had worked as a sur- like a land surveyor when he was younger. So that's where the Culper spy name actually comes from. But I'm going to set the scene for you, okay? So imagine this. You're a historian who has been looking into Long Island history for years. I know, just absolutely fascinating life that you're living. <laughs> you're looking through an attic. There's okay. one There's one historian that's like, what the fuck? Was that? <laughs> Why listening. am I getting subtweeted right now? <laughs> yeah. You're looking through the attic of a historic residence in the area. Ooh, ah. And you come across an old chest. Ooh, hit X to open. Inside of the chest, you find loads of papers. Oh, big prizes. Some with burnt edges and some that are preserved, if dusty. So you begin to go through them, and eventually you realize that these documents might be more important than you expected. So you discover lists of names, logs of activities, and letters from George Washington himself. That's what happened in 1930 when no shit. Morton Pennypacker <laughs> was investigating the revolutionary history of the area. And Pennypacker is uh, never it will never not make me laugh because it's one of the names that like Kramer, George and Jerry use as their alias. Oh yeah. On the day where they go to that like really expensive apartment. Yep. Pennypacker. <laughs> but anyways, Morton Pennypacker was a historian from Long Island and he was like going through there's a, res- a residential home, and the family was like, yeah, we know this has like a historic value. There might be stuff that you can find here if you want to look through it. So he finds all these papers, and they take the letters and look through them, and they compare the handwriting of those letters to handwriting of known culper-spiring letters. And they found that there was a match. And the author of the letters that were in the chest were from a man named Robert Townsend. And between Townsend and then a group of other men and women, that was where the Culper spy ring was born and maintained. And Pennypacker assumed a lot after finding all this information and missed the marks on a few things associated with the Culper ring. But this was a huge step in understanding who they were because nobody knew. They knew code names for people because they had spy ring letters, but Mm -hmm. they didn't know who these people were. So now they knew that one of these people was Robert Townsend, and then they kind of connected more dots from there. So it's kind of an interesting way to... Like, this was an exciting day for this guy. Those people were just sitting on some of the most, like, informative documents of this nation's history. I listened to a show... It's called the Let's Read Podcast. I don't know if they need my our promotion, but here it is. Uh, but it's just like people send him stories and he reads them on the air. And this one person wrote in saying, <laughs> like, it, it said, I went to my, or we were cleaning up my grandpa's house and I found this old sack up in this attic crawl space. And I opened it up and I found out that my grandpa was a Quebecois fighter in, the, in World War II. And so they were like, oh, this is cool. He probably fought the Nazis. And then he dumps oh, no. out a Nazi flag out of the bag. He's like, yeah, my grandpa fought for the Nazis from French Canada. I was like, that sucks. But ooh, <laughs> that's, ooh. that's a case of finding bad stuff in the attic. <laughs> Pennypacker found good stuff in the attic. That's, 
I mean, I guess don't go searching if you don't want to find bad yeah, news. You might find some answers you don't want. And then the guy was like, I'm just not going to let my mom know that I found this because I don't want to break her heart. There's no world where you, you can let your... <laughs> just tell your sweet, hey, dear mom. You remember your dad that you really like a lot? Yeah, he did a lot of bad stuff. You know how much he loved you? Guess what people he hated. Think, think of the worst memory you have of him. This right. is gonna, That's going to lessen this blow a little bit. <laughs> But anyways, Do you remember all the history books? <laughs> he kind of had a little part in that. <laughs> so anyways, that was completely off topic. But after uh, failure to set up intelligence operations in 1776, he, George Washington started to rethink this intelligence strategy, as Evan kind of alluded to. So the first attempt included Nathan Hale, who Evan will talk about more later. Then... Two years later, Washington eventually found a new leader for this spy ring. And at first, it was Nathaniel Sackett of Fishkill, which is an interesting name for a town. How was that? I think... I want to know that entire town's history so bad. They I hope just, it's... They like, had to... If they were not fishermen, then why? <laughs> what's the name? They were actually just known for, like, wicker baskets. <laughs> just something not fitting at all. Anyways, uh, he was the first one recruited by Washington to gather intelligence around New York City because the big thing was that early in the war, the Continental Army lost New York. They, mm -hmm. The British took it over, and that was a huge loss for us. And so the whole time, our, a big focus for us was to get back New York and New York City because it was just a huge hub, and it was a huge port city where we could use the Long Island Sound and stuff like that to transmit information get ships in and out so we were trying to get that back so they needed to send spies in to get intelligence so being that nathaniel sackett was a civilian he needed a military contact and that is where major benjamin talmage comes in benjamin talmage was only 24 at the time that he got appointed director by george washington of military intelligence and then by extension forming the culprit spy ring and the goal of this covert group was to infiltrate back into new york and gather information so that they could infiltrate again and take it back so sackett used talmage as his military liaison and his first recruit nathaniel sackett's first recruit was a connected lawyer in new york named major john clark so a majority of the messages that he got back and forth between his contacts in new york and then talmage were transported by a man named Caleb Brewster, who was a whaleboat captain and a friend of uh, Benjamin Talmadge. And if you've never seen a whaleboat, it's not a huge boat. It's just like a, a larger rowboat. Which is very ironic, yeah. considering whales are big. I was, whenever I heard the name whaleboat, I was expecting like Captain Ahab with like yeah, Moby Dick. guns yeah. and stuff. But it's not that at all. It's right. just a uh, larger than average rowboat. <laughs> so eventually Washington realized that Nathaniel Sackett wasn't really acquiring any useful information for him and so he just terminated that arrangement and then eventually two years later Caleb Brewster sent another letter to Washington and offered his services again to gather intelligence on Long Island and in reply Washington told Brewster to quote not spare any reasonable expense to come at early and true information, end quote. So Washington wow. was staking a lot 
on making sure that this operation worked? Well, it was just so important because we were facing a very much an uphill battle going yeah. up against the British. Because Washington had two years of failed attempts at spies. So mm-hmm. he was really in a between a rock and a hard place on like what he needed to do now. Eventually worked out, though. So with Caleb Brewster back on board, he was already writing intelligence reports by the end of the month. Washington realized that he needed another military liaison for these spies. And initially, he asked Brigadier General Charles Scott and then had Talmadge assist him. So Charles Scott was the one in charge, but Talmadge was kind of like the, the assistant. However, Scott was less than enthusiastic to get this role, and eventually all of the work fell to Talmadge anyways, and by October of 1778, Talmadge had begun recruiting other people and had recruited a friend of his named Abraham Woodhull, who was a local farmer from the town of Setucket, and this is when the operation kind of fully got underway. So once Talmadge had started recruiting, he began to set up a list of codenames for the key players in the Culper spy ring. And he began with George Washington, obviously. And George Washington was code number 711. They didn't go with America's Finest or Bald Eagle 7. No, at least it was 711 and not 911. That would have been tragic. That would have garnered so many conspiracies oh yeah (laughs) like 250 years before oh my god yeah people have had a field day with that so washington was 711 talmadge was 721 and abraham woodhull was 722 talmadge also gave himself and woodhull different names or aliases with talmadge being known as john bolton and woodhull being known as samuel culper senior Oh, so this is where the, the culprit comes from. Yeah, Woodhull would travel to Manhattan and he would report back verbally to Caleb Brewster, the whaleboat captain, what he had seen and heard. And then Charles Scott, who was the one in charge of Talmadge, eventually gave up the position officially, and then Talmadge was promoted to be the director of military intelligence. So now Talmadge is heading everything. Tim and Woodhull, pretty much, with Brewster, and then they're reporting back to Washington. Woodhull realized that he was going to need someone else to help him in New York because he had been stopped by the British sentries and searched, and he realized this might be a little more dangerous than I thought going back and forth this many times. So he recruited a man I mentioned earlier named Robert Townsend. So Townsend eventually took on the alias of Samuel Culper Jr. and used his position as a purchasing agent for his merchant father to procure information in New York. So he had a good way of getting in and out because he was just saying he's selling his wares or trying to get orders filled for his dad. So he had a very, it was very fortunate for Talmadge that this guy was willing to help. That is honestly, you think about history and how perfect some of the craziest things had to have been. Just to get into the city was very tough. Yeah. The British, of course, owned it. And they were not letting just anyone in because everyone was, you know, 50% of the population is a spy. Yeah. So and to have that set up was pretty key. Well, and that's a huge thing, as I, I failed to mention right away, but the culper spy ring was pretty much all civilians mm-hmm. other than, like, Talmadge. It was a whaleboat captain, a, a son of a purchasing agent, and a farmer. And they all walk into a bar. <laughs> <laughs> and they ask the British where they're going next. Yeah. But yeah, this is where... 
the discovery came from in 1930. They found these letters and they found out that Robert Townsend was one of the culpers in the culper spiring. So that's where the name really finally got discovered and all this information came to light. But these spies would carry messages on foot or on horseback for dozens of miles, sometimes over 100 miles. And then they would take that across the Long Island Sound and give that to George Washington in either New Jersey or Connecticut, wherever he was stationed at the time. And in the early days, these code names were used only for the members. They didn't really have any other code or anything like that. It was just Washington 711, 721, 722, whatever their number was. But as the war went on, places and things were also included in these codes to kind of increase the security of the letters. So on top of using code names, they were also using code for different locations, different place markers for people to meet or dead drops, whatever you want to use it for. The good old dead drop. Yeah. So this was another way for them if they did get caught or if the British intercepted one of these letters, it's not like they would have had anything really useful to go off of anyways. It was smart for for 1770 spying. (laughs) Honestly, extremely smart. It's just so hard to trace all those activities as well. Right. But I mean, it's this isn't necessarily like I said in the first episode, spying never really changed. Mm-hmm. It's just that the landscape around it changed. So everyone was trying to figure out everything that had already been figured out, but putting it all together at one time was kind of the struggle that everyone had. Right, right, right. So Talmadge upgraded the system again in 1779 and wrote out a pocket diary with a list of all of the coded words, which ended up totaling 710 different code words and code names. That's such a large codex to memorize. I know. And that was the biggest thing that they found in that chest yeah. is they you can look it up online. There's pictures of it with all of the numbers and then what they correspond to next to it. But the words chose to be coded were the most likely words that were going to be used in communication. So it wasn't just random words. It was mm-hmm. like, what words are we going to need to say over and over in these messages? And those were the ones that were used in these messages, such as number 387 was murder. No, so, <laughs> so that's fun. I don't know why the article I read pointed out that one specifically. I pulled out my gun and 387 him. I <laughs> that's what we're going to call it from now on. Yep. Next time we cover a serial killer, we're going to say they <laughs> number 387. Yeah, it's our way instead of like inserting like a disclaimer. Yeah. Of like, this is a very gory episode. It's like, there's a lot of 387 in this episode. Anyways. The code numbers were a good start, but extra measures were eventually added on top of that, and a special invisible ink was created by amateur chemist James Jay, the son of John Jay. Yeah. Which wasn't necessarily groundbreaking on its own, because this has been done before, but they kind of put their own spin on it and made their own variation on the invisible ink, which was helpful for the spiring, of course. However, the big problem with this concoction he came up with was that it took months to get even a small supply of this solution to Washington, and it took another few months on top of that that Washington would have enough to provide to his spies. So there was a good like nine, ten months where it was just like, well, six months where nobody had it, and then it was another four months where Washington was just using it himself and couldn't let Mm. them use it, too. So it was kind of a one-way system for a while, but 
Eventually, Woodhull received some, used that in his missions, and he was traveling from Setauket to Manhattan every few weeks and then transmitting that information to Brewster. So, this is a dangerous operation. You're going multiple times a month into New York City trying to be obscure. Yeah. So, he was putting his life in his own hands here. Yeah, and like just a simple, like, hey, stop what you're doing, like a random search could have just totally busted him. Yeah, and because you have to remember, New York is under British control, so it's swarming with redcoats. Like, not a safe place for someone who's actively going against them to be. Actively trying to dismantle the Queen's army. And you speak to the wrong civilian, even. There's so many loyalists, so you Mm -hmm. don't know who to trust there either. But Woodhull also relied a lot on Robert Townsend and in addition to Robert Townsend, a rider when he wasn't needed in order to protect himself. So he was taking countermeasures to say, I'm going to stay home. I'm going to let you handle it this week. Send your rider the information that I need. And one of the most important and dependable riders they used was a man named Austin Rowe, who continued up until 1782 when all of the culpering correspondences ended. So they were using even more random people that they could find, whoever was loyal to the cause and they could trust. Now, there is a lot of debate as to the exact methods of delivering information between members of the ring. Uh, There's some authors who report that Austin Rowe would sometimes leave letters in dead drop boxes in one of Woodhull's fields to be retrieved. However, there's a lot of debate over whether he actually did that or not, because one woman named Claire Bellegeau, a historian at Raynham Hall Museum in Oyster Bay, stated, quote, I haven't seen any evidence of a Dropbox, end quote. And she said that it wouldn't have really needed one since Setauket was a very small town. It had like Mm. five houses in it (laughs) at the time. And so they they had no reason to not just pass it off directly, just say I'm visiting a friend and then talking to them. Mm -hmm. They didn't really need Dropboxes unless it was something like super precarious that they needed to use it for but i mean i see her logic but it's more it's cool it's more fun (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's definitely more fun if there was drop boxes right the city was actually huge there was a million british troops (laughs) (laughs) another piece of the legend regarded how anna strong who was one of the spy aides would communicate with caleb brewster to let him know which cove to row into to collect the information because the way it was set up is that the spot where Anna Strong was, there was four or five separate coves where the land jutted out that he could go into, but they would switch it every time where they were meeting so that it wasn't the same place every single time. And then you could get targeted for, it, you know, mm-hmm. so it was smart, but there's debate on how she would communicate because legends tell that Anna Strong would hang up different handkerchiefs and clothing on her clothesline to signal different coves to Brewster. And Brewster would then look through his telescope and know where to go. However, a lot of rumors stated that Brewster would do this from his base in Connecticut across the Long Island Sound, which is probably not feasible because at the narrowest, it's like three miles across. It was a really good telescope. <laughs> so that's probably not how it happened. Yeah. So maybe she did use the clothesline, but he would look at it from his boat, and then from there he would go, or she would just communicate with him a different way. Maybe like the time that he's there the last, she would have told him, like, come to 
cove number two this time. Cove three, yeah. Yeah. Or he just rolls a dice. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he'll find the right cove eventually. (laughs) Just try every single one. Every one. Yeah. So it's not certain that that was actually how it happened, but one way or another, they were getting the communications across. But one of the most enduring tales from the Culper Spy Ring is that of Agent 355. So in the Codex, the number 355 was referenced to the word lady, while 371 referred to the word man. So Mm. in a letter from Woodhull to Washington dated August 15th, 1779, it states, quote, I intend to visit 727, which was the Culper Code for New York, before long, and think by the assistance of a 355 of my acquaintance, shall be able to outwit them all, end quote. Mm. So this one line has spawned multiple stories of an unnamed female spy who was a huge help in the Culper Ring. However, there isn't really any evidence that this lady was a spy for the ring, or if she even knew that Woodhull was a spy. He could have just been using a lady, a friend, lady friend of his acquaintance as a cover while he was in New York, or she was just a basic liaison who had the messages from whoever she was with and handed them to Woodhull without any knowledge that there were like coded spy documents. Yeah, that one sentence can be interpreted in so many different ways. But that somehow has spawned a best-selling novel, movies, like multiple novels and movies. It's it's crazy that this has gotten this far. You know what? I mean, props. I mean, I feel like that's a fun story. It's it's like the drop dead drop things. Right. It's way more fun if this is how it happened. Yeah. Historians let things be cool. So as I just mentioned, this hasn't stopped authors from exaggerating, quote, her importance. A co-host of Fox News named Brian Kilmeade wrote a book in 2013 titled George Washington's Secret Six, The Spy Ring That Saved the American Revolution. So in this book, he lists names of five spies, with the sixth one being the unnamed Agent 355. Conveniently for Kilmeade, he fails to include footnotes, which would help us track his source for where he got this information. Ah, sounds like the Gems of History podcast. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) It also sounds like Fox News. Also, yeah. The kings and queens of just go with it. But even before Kilmeade, our good friend Morton Pennypacker also believed that this Agent 355 was an important part of the spy ring, although he didn't directly say it like Kilmeade did. He just kind of st- like hinted like, hey, maybe that's something. But he never really said what. Right. Could be a little cool. No, a lady. Right. So the story has various retellings, but the basics of the story are that 355 was a female spy who either had a relationship with Woodhull or with John Andre, the British intelligence commander that we discussed last episode. So she would have used either one of these positions to gather intel on the British and then transfer it to the Continental Army. Obviously, if she had a a little romantic interest with John Andre, it's not going to be that hard to get information on the British from the British military intelligence officer. 
Uh, it's kind of like the uh, Marilyn Monroe in the Oval right. Office. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. Getting the nuclear codes. But so once she had that information, then she would just transfer it over to Washington. And she has even been credited with being the one who discovered the plot on Benedict Arnold and foiled it. Oh. So this mysterious Agent 355, 355. Gets, gets a lot of like very good credits yeah she's responsible for taking down the man synonymous with betrayal exactly so the story eventually goes that she gets found out by someone and is captured and taken to a british prison where she is never heard from again and certain tellings of the story even state that she was imprisoned while pregnant and gave birth to woodhull's illegitimate child in prison oh but once again, there's no evidence of this. The only thing that ever references 355 is that one line that I read earlier. So every the last five minutes of this podcast have all just been impromptu. This would be kind of a sick HBO show. Welcome to Fox News. Welcome to Fox News. Just kind of go with it. One historian named Beverly Tyler stated that his belief was that 355 in the letter referred to Anna Strong. Because she had loyalist relatives in New York City, and from what they've found, the evidence strongly suggests that she would accompany Woodhull into town on occasion. So therefore, it might be likely that Anna Strong was the one being referred to as 355, but she was not Agent 355. Mm. The agent part is just added for dramatic effect, pretty much. Oh, yeah. They wouldn't be calling each other agents. No, that word didn't even mean anything. None back of the then. members ever referred to each other as agents. Plus, <laughs> all of the numbers, their code numbers, were all in the seven hundreds. Right. So why would this one random person be three fifty five? Because she's super sneaky. <laughs> it's just you're just lady. <laughs> yeah, lady. Three fifty six must have been tramp. Oh, oh lady in the tramp. Whoa, 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 whoa. Another historian suggested that Anna Strong wasn't connected to the culpa ring at all but rather that Townsend may have had a slave whose name was Elizabeth or Liz, Liss, L-I-S-S, who was his informant. She escaped with a British colonel, but was enslaved again shortly after, and her position as a slave would have given her a perfectly unnoticed status in the British officer's home, which would allow her to like covertly collect information which she would pass back to Robert Townsend, a.k.a. Samuel Culper Jr., and you're probably asking, why would a slave help her slave master in a situation where she escaped said slave master? Uh, it, it's believed that Townsend had agreed to purchase Liss from a very brutal slave owner, and that eventually she was freed through the Townsend family. But the evidence for this comes solely from a single, singular source. So who knows? It's another fanciful, fun tale. Right. But it could be could very well have happened. I don't know. I mean, I hope so. It, that know. would be a very cool story. That would be. That would be. So, as far as like what the Culper Ring was responsible for doing during this time, like that's kind of just like how the Culper Ring was formed, who the people and the players were because that's ultimately the most important part is like how did these people get involved and who were they and how were they so good at this? Mm-hmm. But the things that they were responsible for are just as cool. Because one of the biggest operations that Washington undertook with the Culper spies was preventing an ambush of French troops that were arriving at Rhode Island in right. 1780. Yeah. So the British had information that the French were coming, 
and Washington heard about the fact that they knew through the Culper spies. And once he heard that, he was able to, one, warn the French, but he was also able to spread disinformation that told the British that the Continental Army was planning a raid on New York at the same time that they were planning their ambush of the French. So the British then had to decide between their ambush or defending New York, which, easy call, they defended New York. So they defended against nothing, and the French were able to get in safely. And then Washington, later on in the war, used that almost exact same strategy to prevent British forces from reinforcing a garrison in Yorktown, Virginia, which was kind of a big deal. Kind of key. And eventually, the ring even obtained a copy of British naval codes, which gave the French a huge advantage over the British fleets later in the war. And then that eventually led to Washington sieging Yorktown. So they're huge. <laughs> right. And they also foiled that uh, counterfeiting plot that we yep. talked about in part one. They were responsible for foiling that and getting the people responsible, basically saving, con- essentially saving our economy. Yeah, saved our economy, saved the French, yeah. and then were responsible for helping the French destroy the British fleet, which was the biggest navy in the world yes. at the time. So. The Culper Ring was pretty sweet. Right. Shout out the spies. But this is why George Washington is now referred to by a lot of people as America's first spy master, which is also amazing. That is almost equally as cool of a name as, you know, father of a nation, if you will. I mean, yeah, he had a lot. (laughs) He did a lot. Yeah, he did a lot. He's got more than four different resume titles. Right. Right, right. The Culper spies are truly incredible. It is one of the cooler stories that I've re- done research on recently, I think. But now this, now this next man, Nathan Hale. <laughs> now we're going to talk about the blooper reels. One of the, yeah. <laughs> uh, so Nathan Hale, uh, who was a 21-year-old, uh, and he's known as America, or excuse me, he is referred to as America's best-known spy because he was caught. Yeah. It, I, one, that's another thing that I realized while I was researching all of this is like all of these people were like 23, oh, 24. Yeah. They're all like, very young. And they're putting their lives in their hands, going into enemy territory while you're fighting a war to literally become your own country. Right. This is a lot of stakes. A lot of stakes. And these people just kept calm under pressure enough to infiltrate the enemy lines, which yeah. is insane to me. Right. Like one miss phrase sentence one like because they're not anything they're not really trained no like they're just civilians yeah they're just people yeah but in september of 1776 nathan hale was sent to or he was sent on a reconnaissance mission uh to scope out enemy forces gathering to attack the continental army in manhattan uh he volunteered for this mission and he used the cover of a schoolmaster who was looking for work, which, to his credit, and that's what he did before he became a spy, before he got involved. Hey, uh, I know you're fighting a war here, but Where can, are your I, kids? can I teach these kids? <laughs> yeah. uh, this cover made little difference because Hale was from Connecticut, and he had no idea where to go in Long Island and lacked <laughs> any espionage experience. A+. plus. Soon after landing on Long Island, he was promptly arrested by the British Lieutenant Colonel 
Robert Rogers and the Queen's American Rangers, who were, oh, I don't know how you describe them, but they were another, I guess, counter-espionage group for the British. And after they searched him, they were able to find incriminating notes found in his shoes. He was denied a court-martial because he was a civilian and was ordered to be executed as a spy. He was executed, and he has the famous line where he said at the gallows, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. That's what pretty much why he's famous. If you gotta go out, go out with a killer oh, yeah. quote. That's like the guy killer that, quote, am I right? That's the guy that got like hung during the Salem witch trial, or not hung, got pressed during the Salem witch trials. Right. And he was just like, more weight. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, you're gonna be remembered for that. Go out with the bang. Yeah, this guy just got caught. No trial, just got hung. <laughs> yeah, get out of here. Sucks to suck, I guess. The next story that we have is that of Hercules Mulligan, which if you want to talk about names. Yeah, I read, I had like an overview of this guy. I was like, I hope we're going to talk about this guy because oh, he yeah. has the sweetest name. Uh, Hercules was an Irish-born tailor in New York City and was married to the niece of a British admiral. Mulligan was also a longtime friend of George Washington's aide, Alexander Hamilton. Mulligan was loosely associated with the culprit spy ring, and in one case, while fitting a British officer for a coat, Mulligan learned of a planned attempt to capture George Washington, like that story that we talked about in uh, part one. They're just, <laughs> they're just talking about anything out in the open. The British could not keep their mouth shut. <laughs> A lot of people not. were detected on this plot. On this plot, I also thought you were going to say like, "Oh, he was fitting him for a coat, and he stabbed him through the heart with a pin." <laughs> that would have been a lot. That would have been sweeter. That would have been the warning that Mulligan passed along uh, saved the commander in chief's life. And in another little twist of fate, the tailor was arrested by Benedict Arnold not long after the former American general's defection to the British. And Mulligan, however, was eventually released because he didn't have, Benedict Arnold had no evidence. And that second chance it was just vibes. is where we get the word Mulligan from in golf. There you go. No, it's not. <laughs> I've, yeah, no, I've been duped. No I've been evidence had. to back that up. <laughs> Mulligan often used an enslaved person he owned named Cato as a conduit with the culper ring. Suspected of espionage, Cato was once detained by the British and subject to considerable interrogation. Cato remained faithful, however, never divulging a single word about Mulligan or the spying. And Mulligan later used his influential network of British social contacts to secure Cato's eventual release. It is kind of crazy that there's so many like stories attached to the culper ring and the spies around this time that are just slaves that actually like helping their masters right which is cool which means like okay they're probably not treated as terribly like they're still slaves so it's not good but they're treated well enough that they're willing to help in something like this right and if you think from the spying perspective using an enslaved person i mean this is gonna suck to say but i mean people just tend to look down at them well, yeah. Tend to, of course, not think that they're capable of doing much. Right. That's what I when I was talking about lists. Like they're perfectly unnoticeable. Yes. It's, yeah. Like the British looked at these people and thought they can do no harm. They can yeah. say whatever. They can do whatever in front of them. 
After the war, Mulligan received a visit from George Washington, both to convey the gratitude of the general and to dispel concerns among neighbors and associates that the tailor may have been a British sympathizer. So it was, again, one of those situations where the guy was so good that he fooled both sides. And he was married to a British woman's, or a British, yeah. uh, British guy's daughter. Right, so, right. Who was, like, probably 13. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Washington then permitted Mulligan to display a sign that read, Clothier to General Washington. Basically saying that this is George Washington's tailor. Nice. That's, that's a good credit to have. That is not bad. That's not bad to have on <laughs> Unless a Unless you suck. Yeah. That's a, it's like, wow, our president I owe you a, not have a fit. I owe you a lot, so I can't say no to this outfit. But. <laughs> yeah. uh, our next story. So in 1776, Louis Constigen, a former merchant from New Brunswick, New Jersey, was serving as a lieutenant in the Continental Army. Following the American victory at the Battle of Trenton, George Washington learned that the British were advancing on New Brunswick and ordered a mission to survey enemy troop strength. Constigen was chosen, likely owing to his familiarity with the area, but he was soon captured by British cavalry. Because he was in uniform, Lewis was treated as a prisoner of war instead of a spy, saving the officer from certain execution. Escorted to the British-occupied New York, Louis Constigen was paroled and entrusted to roam freely through the city, in uniform, on the promise that he would not communicate with the Continental Army. <laughs> on the promise that he pinky swore. It's so crazy to me that this is still the time period where everything is so cut and dry with a battle yeah. and like war at this time. Mm-hmm. Everything is so civil. Right? Like, civil war, huh? No, uh, but, like, the British are so used to fighting, like, line up, everyone knows where everyone is, you look each other straight in the eye to fight. So, the fact that there's so many rules in place that it's just like, prisoner of war is a good thing right? at this time period. It's insane to me. Prisoner of war, really not that bad. No, yeah, you could just go around the city, buddy. Yeah, you're just walking around. Just be back by bedtime. Yeah, okay. don't, don't you send any little letters. Constigen remained in New York for nearly two years and befriended enemy officers and collected information about troop deployments, fortifications, and supplies. In 1778, Washington ordered his exchange for a captured British officer. Instead of returning to the Continental Army, Constigen chose to remain in New York, likely faking loyalist sympathies to continue his spying. He kept up the ruse for four more months, gathering more intelligence while still in uniform, and passing it through the lines to Washington, each note signed simply with the letter Z. Nice. Kostigen eventually returned to the army, and the value of his intelligence is extremely evident from both the praise he later received from Washington and the considerable alarm Washington expressed when reports from his Z spy ceased unaware that he had actually already returned. I wonder why he chose Z. Because it's so zany. (laughs) All right. (laughs) You'll see yourself out. (laughs) (laughs) Our next story actually occurs following the British capture of Philadelphia in 1777. 
The ranking British commander established his residence in the vacated house of one of Washington's generals. Across the street, however, lived the Darag family, who, like most Quakers, appeared to be neutral during the war. Once British officers, including John Andre, began using the conveniently located home across the street as a meeting site, the family of Quakers became a family of spies. Nice. That's kind of cool. Spy family. Wow. Spy kids. Yeah. Lydia, who was the family's matriarch, secretly collected intelligence she overheard. Her husband then encoded these messages and sewn them. And then sewn sewn them. Sewed. Sewed. I think. And then sewed them into clothing. (laughs) Went about sewing them. Right. Went about, yeah. Uh, But he sewed them into the clothing of their 14-year-old son. All right, Billy, here you go. Don't get caught. Hey, kiddo, go get them. He then carried the messages to Washington's headquarters several miles away at White Marsh, where they decoded, where they were decoded by his brother, who was serving under Washington. Oh, so the family's brother was serving under yep. Washington. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Like, again, right place, right time. Yeah, that's sweet. One notable exception to their routine occurred in December of that year when Lydia learned that the British were planning a surprise offensive against Washington's army at White Marsh. On the pretense of needing flour from a nearby mill, Lydia traveled across the British lines the next day to deliver a coded message herself to the Continentals. Her warning confirmed other intelligence Washington had received, and he surprised the British with a stout defense, repelling the British advance at the Battle of White Marsh. It wasn't until 1827, when Lydia's daughter published a book about the family's wartime spying activities, that the role of the family became known. So, 50 years later is when she published that book. That's cool. That is really cool. These spies really did take this role, like, to the grave, pretty much. Right. Except when that son had to, like, hand me down his clothes, and there's like, what's all this? (laughs) What's all this uh, 711s and 723? I got my name sewn in mine. Yeah, well, I got coded messages for George Washington. Yeah, I'm the reason why this country's alive. <laughs> what a flex in like high school or college. Right. And we're going to wrap up with one more story, and it's of James Armistead. So, James Armistead was one of several African American spies during the Revolutionary War and perhaps the most consequential. Serving at the 1781 Battle of Yorktown under the Marquis de Lafayette, the French aristocrat and officer commanding American troops, Armistead was a double agent. An enslaved person, Armistead's owner allowed him to join the Continental Army earlier that year. He was assigned to Lafayette, who became aware of his extensive local knowledge and as a regular visitor to the city, his familiarity among the British garrison in Yorktown became very important and very good. And I'm trying to say words. Posing as a runaway enslaved person, Armistead crossed the British lines into Yorktown and began collecting intelligence. To discourage local British troops from being diverted to Yorktown, he also passed disinformation about non-existent continental forces. Cleverly prepared in Lafayette's own handwriting, for the British to recognize. So he was planting 
fake letters to these British officers in order for us to take Yorktown. This is this is so fun. Like I watched a video on the Roman spies back in the day. Yeah, and this is exactly what they did. They had des- like quote unquote deserters from the army go into the enemy camps, be like, I'm here to help you guys now. And they would just give them wrong messages or collect intel and then run back to the other, like to their (laughs) actual army and then tell them what they said or like what they told them. And it just worked. It just worked like probably (laughs) so simple. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we're going against the Roman army and someone from said army is like, Hey, I'm here to help. You're probably like, thank God. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) After the war, Lafayette attached a convincing endorsement to Armistead's petition for freedom. This petition was approved by the Virginia government in 1787, and Armistead became a farmer, even earning a modest pension from the Virginia legislature for his wartime service. That's actually really cool. Yeah, I wanted to end with that story because it's very cool. Yeah, you don't hear anything like that really around this time period so yeah not in the 1700s it's uh hard to come by i guess he is from more a little more north so he probably had a better better time at it but right yeah right right. that is cool but uh that wraps up the last story that i had of all the different spies that we did wanted to cover but hope you guys enjoyed the two different uh i was giving you background music hope you guys enjoy hope you guys enjoyed these last two episodes i mean it's extremely interesting to learn that of course we talk a lot about the actual battles like the battle of yorktown battle of white marsh lexington and concord la di da da but behind the scenes is where we really won the war with our spy network. Yeah, and a lot of people do say like, oh, without the Culper spy ring, we never would have won. It's like, ah, that's not necessarily true, but they did help a lot. So it's not to say that they didn't help us win. They did. It's just like they weren't the one reason. You know, it was a game, or it was a team game. It was. You know? Yeah. It took an entire country. Yeah, you know, when you play Age of Empires, you need a little bit of everyone to help out. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. if you guys want to continue the conversation, you can find us on all social medias. On Twitter, you can find us at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco and then myself at whatevskis. Then you can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok where we have really awesome content, specifically the video content that Jacob's been uh, putting out. Uh, and you can find us at Gems of History Podcast. Yes. And go rate and review on iTunes. Give us a rating on Spotify. Do all that fun stuff. Tell your friends. Yes, give the gift, the Christmas gift of a one subscription. Yeah, (laughs) give us more exposure so that me and Evan can stop doing our magical rituals to get more listeners that we have to do every single day. I'm running out of things to sacrifice, guys. We're we're burning through our candle budget real fast, (sighs) literally. That was nice. So. Yeah, go, go tell your friends, help us out. But seriously, thank you guys for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, since the Christmas season's coming up, we are probably going to take a week off somewhere in that mix of things going on. We don't know exactly when yet, but we will still be bringing you guys content for a couple of the weeks in December, and hopefully you guys enjoy that. But yes, we would like to take a little bit of time for ourselves and our families because there's a lot going on around this time of the year. Very busy. <laughs> so if you, if you guys can understand that. But yes, thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you guys liked it. I, I had a lot of fun researching this. The Culper Spies and stuff was super cool. 
I would like to do more spy stuff in the future. I think mm-hmm. that'd be a lot of fun, especially like World War One, World War Two. That's when spies get nuts because you're talking having to learn an entire different culture and language to yeah. be like a German spy or vice versa. Yeah, there, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but there's one that I heard the name of and read a little bit about who was like one of the main reasons why we, we had so much good information during World War One. some female spy. But I was like, yeah, we got to talk about her sometime. 355. Yeah, <laughs> it's the modern 355. Yeah, go out and do your own research and figure out what story you want 355 to be. Let 355 mm. in, live in your imagination. It's however you want. 355 lives in all of us. I had nothing else there. No, on that <laughs> note, we're going to end. Yeah, that was no. beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, everybody.